how good it is to be part of a loving community, and that is our theme for this morning. If you've been following along with us, we're in a series on our core values. We're studying the biblical passages that have informed the hearts and thinking of the pastors and elders as we've looked at what the character of the church is supposed to be. And this morning, we've arrived at core value number three, which is loving community. Loving community. I want to read to you what the elders have written and urge you to think about it. Core value number three is that the Lord intends and commands his church to be a loving community. This requires a personal and a corporate commitment to be intentionally involved with other believers in accountable, loving, and encouraging relationships. By organizing ourselves into life groups who know each other's needs, pray for each other, and care for one another in practical ways, a loving community is built and members are stirred up toward love and good deeds. And the elders cite a key passage on this, which is Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 through 25, which says, Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The Lord intends us to be a loving community. Let me read that core value again. The Lord intends and the Lord commands his church to be a loving community. Well, how do we get there? The statement says this requires a personal and corporate commitment. It's both individual and collective. This requires a personal and corporate commitment to be intentionally involved with other believers in accountable, loving, and encouraging relationships. By organizing ourselves into life groups who know each other's needs, pray for each other, and care for one another in practical ways, a loving community is built and members are stirred up toward love and good deeds. They are encouraged, as the scripture tells us to be. So our focus this morning is going to be on the character and the culture of the church. And we'll be asking the question, what should belonging to a local church be like? And that, of course, begs a broader question, which is, what is the church? Before we can know what belonging to a a local church is supposed to be like and what our part is in it, we got to know what the church is in the Lord's design. So we'll be looking this morning at what the church is, and we'll be looking at what it is supposed to be like to belong to it, and then we'll be talking along the way about what we're supposed to be like as its members. What is the church? The church was, as Scripture says, purchased by Christ with his own blood. He loves her. 
She's called in Scripture the bride of Christ for whom he laid down his life. She is precious in his sight, and he promised in Matthew 16, the first time that the Lord Jesus mentions the church, he says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What is the church? The church, we know, was designed and built by Jesus. So what is this entity that we call the church supposed to be and to do, and what should our local assembly of believers be and do? Now, there's so much in Scripture on this important topic, a topic we call ecclesiology or the study of the doctrine of the church. There's so many passages I wish I could share with you. In fact, this week I was kind of struggling which passage to choose because there were several that I wanted to serve, and I realized I was on the verge of launching into a mini-series within our mini-series, as you know I have a tendency to do. So, But I decided I needed to avoid that temptation, just do a single message on this so that we kind of stay on track as we go through our core values. So then I thought, well, I'll just try to pack it all in. I'll try to cover all the passages. And then it dawned on me that this is supposed to be a 45-minute sermon, not a four-and-a-half-hour sermon. So we'll have to focus on just a single passage. And so I selected 1 Peter chapter 1, verses t- verse 22 through chapter 2, verse 9. So please turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1, and we'll begin in verse 22. As you're turning there, i got to tell a little humorous story about one of my children. A couple weeks ago, I finished the message, and I walked down these stairs as I do, you know, as I do every first service, and my family kind of sits over in this section. And my eight-year-old, Anastasia, uh, Annie, uh, does what she always does when I come home or even just walking down the stairs. She just ran up and gave me this huge hug. She just has this smile that could just light up my world. And she came and gave me a a big hug. And she said, Daddy, why did you end your sermon? I wanted you to keep going. And I was like, oh, how how sweet is that? I mean, you know, at eight-year-old, you know, for an eight-year-old to listen to an adult-length sermon and to get to the end of it and say, Daddy, I wanted you to keep going. I mean, I was I I was really feeling good about it, and she kind of paused and then added, Daddy, I wanted you to keep going because I was almost asleep. (laughs) And when you stopped, it woke me up. (laughs) Uh, You know, I can't see you all as well as you probably think I can see you, but I will say she's not always alone in being woken up when I end, you know. You know, sometimes preachers inadvertently give a physical blessing instead of a spiritual one. I mean, you know, a nice peaceful mid-morning nap uh, punctuated by the words amen at the end uh, and a song to wake you up. That's, uh, you know, sometimes we give that kind of blessing. But I, I do believe that the Lord has a, a spiritual blessing in store, and so I hope you'll kind of sit a little bit forward in the edge of your pew and and listen to the three key lessons about the church that we can learn from 1 Peter chapter 1 on into chapter 2 and then the related passages that inform our understanding of what the church is and what it's supposed to be. So let's read together 1 Peter chapter 1 beginning in verse 22. 
The apostle writes, since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. Here comes the command. Fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted of the kindness of the Lord. And coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. And to this doom they were also appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy but now you have received mercy. There are three key truths about the church in this passage. We're going to see that the church is a spiritual brotherhood, and so we must love each other. Secondly, the church is a spiritual body, so we must help each other grow. Third, the church is a spiritual building, so we must edify or build up one another. Let's look at that first one. The church is a spiritual brotherhood, so we must love each other. Look at chapter 1, verse 22. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. I want you to notice the cause and effect structure in the first half of Verse 22, 
Verse 22 begins with these words, since, that's the cause, and then it's going to tell us the effect. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls, that's the cause. Now, what is the effect of purifying your soul in obedience to the truth? What does purifying your soul in obedience to the truth produce? What is its effect? Verse 22 says, for a sincere love of the brethren. You have purified your soul, that's the cause, for a sincere love of the brethren, that's the effect. Cause and effect. Purification of the soul produces or affects sincere love of the brethren. This verse is saying that when our souls are purified by obeying the truth of the gospel, it results in sincere love and sincere love for the brethren, for our brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, when we think about the change that takes place in our hearts when we're born again, we usually think of the change that takes place in our attitude toward God and our relationship with Him. And that, of course, is certainly true and appropriate. The gospel does change our relationship with God from enmity to love. We were His enemies, and then our hearts are transformed, our souls are purified, and where we once hated God and resented God and resented His rules and all of that, now we love the Lord. We understand that His law is for our good and, and for our flourishing, and we adore Him and worship Him. So the number one effect of the cause, right, the cause is the purification of the soul through the new birth of the gospel, the first effect is a change in our relationship with God. But that is not the only effect. There's another key effect. The gospel not only transforms our relationship with God, it also transforms our relationship with the church, with brothers and sisters who also, like us, have been born again by faith. I want you to think about Saul. When God saved him, what happened in him? Well, first of all, it transformed him from someone who hated God to someone who loved and served God. But it also transformed him from someone who hated Christians to someone who devoted his life to loving and serving them transformed him from a persecutor of the church to an apostle of the church. There was a change not only in his vertical relationships, but in his horizontal relationships. He had a change in attitude and relationship toward the people of God. And that change in attitude and relationship toward the people of God is a core characteristic of the new birth. In fact, it is such a core characteristic of the new birth that the New Testament describes it as a key way a person can know if they are really saved. If you love the brethren, that is a sign that you are truly born again. If you're indifferent to the brethren or even kind of resent the brethren or don't like the brethren, then it is likely that you don't know God. This is stated very clearly and explicitly in 1 John chapter 4. So just turn a few pages over from 1 Peter 
to 1 John chapter 4. And just listen as I read most of 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. We'll read all the way to the end of the chapter and one verse beyond. 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. The Bible teaches that when someone is born again, they're indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God. If you do not love those indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God, it's because you do not love the resident of their souls. How can you not love the brethren, when they are indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God. If you love God, you will love your brothers and sisters in Christ. You will. John goes on to say, We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Verse 15, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Think about this. God So love the world, he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him will not perish. God loves his children. If the Holy Spirit is in you, he will be loving those whom he saved, whom he put into the body of the church. How can someone who is indwelled by the Holy Spirit not love Someone else indwelled by the Holy Spirit. The Father loves the Son. The Spirit loves the Father and the Son. There is, throughout Scripture, the teaching of inter-Trinitarian love. So the Holy Spirit who indwells one and the Holy Spirit who indwells another, there's not a conflict or an absence of love in that situation. If God abides in you and God is love, you will love the brethren. Full stop. Verse 16, we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. Not just for me, but for us, plural. God is love and the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this love is perfected with us, plural, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Now listen to this. If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. 
and this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Now listen to 1 John 5, verse 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. Whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. You know, someone who hates your children is an outsider to your family. Someone who does not love your children doesn't love you. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father also loves the child born of him. We love our spiritual family. We love one another. We love the brethren. The message of the New Testament is clear. If the new birth has really taken place, you will love God and you will love those who are born of God. You will love your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the point First Peter chapter 2, verse 22 is making. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart, for you have been born again. Notice that Verse 23 reinforces that cause and effect relationship in verse 22. Just in case you missed it, he repeats it. The Verse 23 begins with the word for. Why should you have a sincere love of the brethren? Why should you love them fervently? Why should you love them from the heart? Verse 23 says, for you have been born again. And one of the purposes for which you were born again is to love the brethren. It's a command and it is the purpose of the new birth. A key and a core purpose. The point is clear. Love of the brethren is a key result, a key effect, a key purpose, and a key command of the new birth. So we must love one another. Well, how are we to love one another? Well, there's three characteristics of this love which are mentioned in verse 22, a sincere love, a fervent love, and a heartfelt love. A sincere love, a fervent love, and a heartfelt love. We need to love one another sincerely. It says, since you have in obedience to truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. A sincere love is the opposite of a hypocritical one. It's genuine. It is sincere. You know, a hypocrite says he loves the brethren, but his attitudes and actions say otherwise. He doesn't miss them when they're apart. He has no desire to serve or bless them. He says he loves the brethren, but his attitudes and actions undermine the legitimacy of that claim. He doesn't desire to be with them, to fellowship with them. He doesn't miss them when circumstances prevent him from assembling with them. He doesn't have any desire to serve or wash their feet as the Lord commanded us to do. See, this, there are a lot of people who have not a sincere love for the brethren, but a hypocritical love. Oh, they loudly proclaim it. In fact, they may be the most gregarious person in the lobby. Hey, how are you? So good to see you. I'm not, I, I hope you're gregarious in the lobby. But, but sometimes the same guy who puts on such a show of 
loving the brethren. Can't be bothered to do anything for them. Oh, he will, he will be the warmest person you've ever met in the lobby, but do not call him on a Saturday with a need. Don't ask him to go help a widow in the church. Oh no, that's fishing time. That's me time. And nobody gets on me time, not even my brothers and sisters in Christ. It's a hypocritical love, not a sincere love. Not saying it's wrong to go fishing, guys, don't worry. I like it too. But if it's continually an excuse as to why you don't need to do anything for anyone, then you have some self-evaluation to do while you're casting the line. The Lord commands us to have a sincere love, not a superficial one, a sincere one. Christian, if Christ has saved someone, they belong to the family of God. And we should love our spiritual family with a sincere love. We should also love them with a fervent love. Right? He says, if you have purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, now here comes the command, fervently love one another. Fervently. We need a fervent love. And a fervent love is the opposite of a passive love. It's fervent. It's proactive. In fact, the word used here is defined by one lexicon as, quote, an unceasing activity involving a degree of intensity. This is persistence, and this is intensity. This is not passive. This is not, hey, I'll be the backup option. If no one else will do it, then okay, fine, I'll do it. No, this is eagerness. This is fervency. This is how can I help? Who can I serve? Who has a need? This is someone who's looking and hoping for an opportunity to bless someone in the body of Christ. Fervent love. Taking an active, not a passive stance towards blessing others. It's the person who's not only willing to serve, but can't wait to do it. Looks forward to do it prioritizes doing it. When you love someone fervently, you constantly look for opportunities to demonstrate that love. You know, when Katie and I started dating, I started to realize what was happening in my heart. It kind of went from a crush to something more. Then it got to the point where I knew I loved her fervently. How How did I know I loved her fervently? She was always on my mind. I couldn't wait to see her. I kept thinking about ways I could bless her or bring a smile to her face or compliment her or whatever it was I could do to give her joy. I wasn't passive. I didn't sit back and wait for her to call me. Hey, do you want to go to coffee? Oh, no. I was waiting for her to get out of class. Constantly thinking about how to do something nice or sweet for her. I loved making her smile, and her happiness became my priority. Blessing her became a central focus of my thoughts, of my time, and of my money. It wasn't hard to see how important she was to me. 
when you love someone fervently, you switch from a passive approach to a proactive approach. You don't wait around telling yourself that you'll meet an urgent need if no one else will. You'll be first in line, first to step up, eager, disappointed if the need is already met. You'll go looking for opportunities to serve and bless. The point here is pretty clear. In a church, we have lots of people who are willing to be the emergency backup option. But there's a select few who are always eager. In fact, with them, you don't have to motivate them to serve. You've got to tell them, hey, you can't take on more. We, we, we share a need, and the same people are like, oh, I'll, I'll do it. You know, just right after I, I, I minister to this widow, I, I think I have time in between that, and I, I, can, I, I can squeeze it in. People like that are such blessings. Be eager to serve. And then be reliable in fulfilling your ministry responsibilities. Don't be someone who has to be cajoled into serving or guilt-tripped into it. I don't want to guilt-trip you. Because it's not what the Lord wants. He doesn't want you to, okay, fine. No one will, fine. I just got the 88th email that there's no, not enough volunteers in the nursery or the kids program. It's fine. I guess I'll do it if no one else will. Do you find yourself thinking that exact thought? Fine, I'll do it if no one else will. It's not, not the right attitude. We need a fervent love. Third, we need a heartfelt love. The command is love one another fervently. And then that last phrase in verse 22, from the heart. From the heart. It has to be a heartfelt love. And a heartfelt love is the opposite of a superficial one. And I think when we read the phrase, love one another from the heart, we should be immediately reminded of the second greatest commandment, which is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, we should love each other with the same intensity and the same persistence that we already love ourselves. By the way, no one has to teach you to love yourself. You're born loving yourself. No one has to tell you to think about yourself. You think about yourself all the time. No one has to tell you to seek your own happiness. You already do that. No one has to tell you to try to alleviate your own suffering. You try to do that too. Even people who harm themselves, they harm themselves because they're trying to alleviate their own suffering and apparently willing to transfer that suffering onto their loved ones. No one has to tell others to seek their own happiness. We do that naturally. No one has to tell you to serve yourself. When you get hungry, you eat. You get thirsty, you drink. In fact, it's almost all you can think about. Yes, you, re- you cognitively realize that other people are hungry or thirsty, but what's most pressing to you is your own feelings. You're preoccupied with your own needs and wants day and night. It's true of all of us. What Jesus is saying here is he's saying, look, take the level at which you already love yourself, and if you will love others that way, you will have fulfilled every command I've ever given. Every command. 
because you'll be thinking of others all the time. You'll be seeking their happiness all the time. You'll be trying to alleviate their suffering all the time. You will be out there doing what I've commanded you to do if you will only love others to the same measure you already love yourself. We need to have a love from the heart. The heart is the center of your being. And we're born with the big M-E at the center of our thoughts and motives and endeavors. That big M-E needs to be flipped upside down so it reads W-E, right? Not just me, but we. Beloved, since the church is a spiritual brotherhood, we must love each other sincerely, fervently, and from the heart. Second, we are a spiritual body, so we must help each other grow. Look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. We need to grow. And Peter uses here the analogy of physical growth to teach us a lesson about spiritual growth. Like a newborn baby longs for milk, we must long for the pure milk of God's word so that we can grow, grow in our faith. And the New Testament often compares the life of faith to the life of the physical body. A body needs nourishment. A body needs to grow to maturity. And it needs each part to do its part in order for that to happen. So here, Peter focuses on the nourishment that comes from the word, which is needed for individual spiritual growth. But in other passages, such as Ephesians 4 and 1 Corinthians 12, the focus becomes not on the individual growth, but on corporate growth. As each part of the body grows individually, that causes the body to grow. As my you know, as my hand grows, so must my feet and so must the rest of me so that the whole body reaches maturity. And the problem with churches is we have atrophied parts, parts which never grow, parts which never develop into full maturity. So it's like a body where one part is full grown and mature, right? The, the right arm is nice and, and full-grown adult maturity, and we have this little four-year-old arm sticking out the other side, and we're trying to do stuff with it. Because one part of the body didn't grow. Peter is saying, look, you need to grow, and in order to grow, you have to long for the milk of the word, and you need to grow to maturity so that you, as a mature part, help the rest of the body then to grow. We must grow. We are a spiritual body, so we must help each other grow. I want to share with you something that's been on my heart, and that is my own role in the body and the role of the elders. Hebrews 13, 17 says that we keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. There is coming a day when I will stand before Christ and I will be asked to give an account for you for your souls. I've been thinking, how am I going to answer the Lord? Lord, I preach your word faithfully. I, I, I pray I'll be able to say that. I'll be able to say, Lord, I, I was available. The, they all knew they could call the church office and get an appointment within a week or two. But I don't think that's enough. I can't 
give an account for your souls unless I know what's going on in your soul. Right? I need to keep watch over your soul. So I've been thinking, how do I do that? There's 772 adult members of our church, plus their children. I can try to interact with as many as I can here, there in the lobby. You know, I, my door is open. Anyone can call, get an appointment within a week or two, but I don't think that's enough. That's, that's a more passive approach. I need a proactive approach. I've been looking for those approaches, and I'm doing some things in terms of trying to develop more of a systematic approach to prayer for you. But I want to let you know that something else I'm, I'm going to be trying to do, and which I've asked Anna Madigan to help me to do uh, starting this week. I've set aside three time slots in my schedule, 8 to 8.30 in the morning, 12.15 to 12.45, right, in the noon lunch break, and then 4.30 to 5 for member prayer and care. And my hope and goal is to meet with each member of the church at least once a year for a half hour to fellowship and pray together face-to-face. This is in addition to making appointments and other opportunities we may have to fellowship, but I want to make sure that I am having an opportunity to just find out how you're doing and to pray with you and to, to try to meet any unmet needs or, or to link you with someone who can. I just want to spend time with you and to hear how you're doing and, and to pray with you and for you. So expect a call from Anna sometime in the next 12 months. <laughs> and please take us up on that opportunity you know, the first slot is, you know, 8 to 8.30. So, you know, find it one day in the year where you can go into work a little late and just come by and see me or take the lunch break slot and, you know, take lunch at 12, drive over, meet with me from 12.15 to 12.45 and then get back to work by the end of your lunch break or maybe, you know, leave a little early from work and get here by 4.30. I would love to just spend some time with you and pray with you. We need to help each other grow. And I I hope you'll be contemplating, right? Hebrews 10 says, let us consider how to stimulate one another towards love and good deeds. We got to think about it. How can we do this? How can we make sure no one slips through the cracks? How can we make sure everyone is cared for? The church is a spiritual body. We must help each other grow. Third, and in conclusion, the church is a spiritual building, so we must edify one another. Listen to verse 4. Coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are living stones who together are forming a spiritual house, a spiritual temple for the praise of God. So we must build each other up. This building has to grow, and you're a living stone with a key role in this great structure, in this grand design. Now, when I say that the church is a building, I'm not talking about the building we're in. I'm talking about the building we are. We call this building, the physical structure, a church facility. Why? Because it facilitates what the church is supposed to do. It facilitates the functions of the church. Facilities facilitate. But the facility is not the church. The living stones are. It's not the physical stones which are the church. It's the living stones. Now, in the same way that your house is not your family, but it is your family's home, the physical building is not the church itself, but it is our church's home. And so it's special and important to us. 
But again, it's not the physical stones that make a spiritual house. It's the living stones that do that. And in that spiritual building, by the design of the architect, the architect has hewed, made you and hewed you in an exact shape and form in order to be the spiritual house. If you go to Jerusalem and you look at these tremendous walls and buildings, you have to realize that each of those stones was cut by hand to a particular shape. And they were cut to fit together tightly. And therefore to bear these huge loads without any steel or other supporting things. Literally by the fit of the stones together, these huge structures were made. That's why we need to edify one another, build one another up. In the spiritual building, each living stone has a vital role and the structural integrity of the whole building depends on each individual stone, on whether it is in its assigned place, the place assigned by the architect, and whether that stone is successfully bearing its load. You know, sometimes we slip into sin. It's like a stone slipping out of alignment with the plan of the architect, and that puts the whole building at risk. And so we have to gently help misalign stones to get back into alignment with the architectural plan of our great designer. There are other times in which suffering creates a burden on one stone which is too great for it to bear. So the living stones have to rush and put their shoulder up under that burden so that that stone is not crushed. Because if that stone is crushed, the whole building will suffer. And that's what Galatians 6 talks about. It gives us two ways we're to edify each other. First, we are to restore a living stone when it slips out of alignment with the design of the architect, right? It says those, right, who are spiritual, if someone sins, those who are spiritual, go and restore them in a spirit of gentleness. And then make sure you're not tempted, that you don't slip out of alignment in the process. And then Galatians 6.2 says, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. There are burdens too heavy for a single stone to bear. That's why we must be fitted together to bear it together. The church is a spiritual building, so we must edify one another. Well, we've seen that the church is a spiritual brotherhood, so we must love each other. The church is a spiritual body, so we must help each other grow. And the church is a spiritual building, so we must edify or build up one another. Let's ask for the Lord's help in doing that. Lord, help us to be a loving community for your glory. Lord, we thank you that by grace we are living stones. Help us, O oh Lord, to be that spiritual house, a royal priesthood which offers up to you praise and worship which is acceptable to you through Christ. For this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.